three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Church Historian on the Hot Seat. As most of you know, back on April 25th, 2023, the church historian Kyle McKay went to Brigham Young University, Idaho, where he gave an address to help shore up the faith of the students attending that institution. That address was so remarkable, I devoted an entire episode to breaking it down. That episode was titled, Compelling Reasons to Doubt Mormonism, mainly because Elder McKay admitted in his talk that there were, in fact, compelling reasons to doubt Mormonism. What I did not know at the time was that the prior Saturday, the Saturday before he gave this talk at BYU-Idaho, Kyle McKay went to the home of a former seminary teacher named Joe. Now, I'm not including Joe's last name here at his request and out of respect for his privacy. But Joe was a seminary teacher in Idaho for 14 years. He was very popular as a seminary teacher, but things happened around 10 years ago that caused him to doubt his faith, and he stopped being a seminary teacher at that time. At some point, he stopped going to church, as did his wife and their children. Now, making the plot thicker is that Joe's father-in-law is the stake president. Yes, his wife's dad is the stake president, and this is how it happened, that the church historian was able to end up coming into Joe's home. It was facilitated by his father-in-law, the stake president, who had special access to Elder McKay and was able to carve out an hour and a half on a Saturday to drop by Joe's house with the idea in mind, of course, that the church historian would be able to answer the questions that Joe had about church history. Well, in spite of the fact that that was almost certainly on the agenda, things did not go according to plan, and the way I read the room, it was the church historian who ended up being put on the hot seat by Joe, because Joe knows his stuff. He knows it backward, he knows it forward. And during the first approximately one hour of this one and a half hour meeting, Joe is giving an overview of why it is that he thinks his doubt about the truth claims of the church is a position that should be respected. Then in the last half hour, Elder McKay attempts as best he can to overcome those objections that Joe has and lead him back to faith in Christ, which apparently for Elder McKay is synonymous with faith in the LDS church. I think we've all had the experience of hearing about some kind of meeting going on someplace where we are not and wishing that we could be a fly on the wall. Well, Joe recorded the entire conversation, and it is that recording that I'm going to be playing here in a moment. We do get to be a fly on the wall. We do get to listen in on what was happening in this conversation between the church historian and Joe. Now, there are two other people in the room, and you will hear their voices as well. One of the other people is Joe's wife, and the fourth person is, of course, the stake president, Joe's father-in-law. And you will hear both of their voices from time to time, but the main people you will hear speaking are Elder McKay and Joe. I want to state that I have gone back and done a little light editing of the tape. Primarily, my purpose was to delete any personal names of individuals who may have been present at the meeting or may have been referred to during the meeting. 
but those are the only edits that I have made. Everything else you hear is the recording of how it happened in this meeting between the church historian and Joe, the former seminary teacher, on April 22nd, 2023. Finally, I want to say once again that I know Kyle McKay in that I was a mission companion with him back in January of 1980 in Fukuyama, Japan. He was my training missionary. He was the first companion I had after arriving in Japan. He was a wonderful guy then. He's a wonderful guy now. I do not for one moment think that Kyle McKay is a bad person. He's just making a bad argument. So, with those introductory comments out of the way, let's go to the tape, shall we? Well, welcome. I'm, I'm genuinely happy to have you in my home. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I know you, you've studied, you know, you've given me that book of the past church historian, and I thought this would be a great opportunity for you to meet him. Yeah. Ask him any questions. You know, I know there's things in the church history that's bothering you, that you don't quite agree with. This is the man to talk Right. And I believe that. Thank you. We probably have the same things. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So let me, um, let me say this. Um, I guess we'll jump right into some stuff. Um, one, from a, just from a, you know, a big picture me in my mind, I, I absolutely um, am here to, to, to learn. And I'm not, um, I'm not dumb enough or smart enough to think that, that I know everything. I don't know what I don't know. Um, I, you know, I deal with um, teenagers and parents and faculty on a pretty regular basis that are always, there's comp, I'm an assistant principal. Assistant principal. Oh, I was going to say, school. you're in education. Um, so I get to be in a room working with different stories and different problems yeah. and concerns and, and 90% of the problem is someone in the room is missing information. Um, and you don't, and you know, the people who are super passionate about something, they don't know what they don't know. And so I, I am obviously I'm going to share what I know and what I feel in my position and my view of things, but I'm I'm absolutely willing to have that opinion, position, and view adjusted whenever evidence helps me along. So if that makes sense. Can I give an opening statement as well? Why, please do. Uh, it, it, it may be, and I hope you're not disappointed that I don't directly answer, uh, at least not to your satisfaction. But I am here to build faith, and I want to distinguish between building faith in Jesus Christ and trying to recruit you back to full activity in the church. Um, in, in my mind, I mean, if you believe in Jesus, you believe in church because of what he said about church. But I, I, want, I want to help you build your faith in Christ. So, and, and if I have information that can be helpful, I'm happy to share it. I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. So, um, let me let me tell you where my brain's been this week, um, and I'm gonna go. This is probably worse. I'm gonna go grab a pop out of the fridge. I've already got. I've already got a pop in my mouth. Like a water. Then you think that a guy who talks every day, all day for 12 hours straight. I apologize, there's caffeine in this. If that's uh. But anyway, well, you know your father. <laughs> so it's not. <laughs> so let me explain my thought process. Um, and I, one, I want you guys to be here. I want you to take as much time as possible. I would love it if you spent all day in the rest of your meetings. You can, you can, you know, you never say that. I know all those guys. We'd love to too, but we can't. You let them know that I, it was an emergency. <laughs> anyway, so in order to, one, um, collect my thoughts, 
make something intelligent sounding and, and then allow myself to keep things you know, on task. Um, I started writing stuff down this week. Um, by the time I stopped writing, I had a significant book. And I was like, what is that? I mean, I'm reading through it, I'm like, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. So then I deleted and deleted and deleted and anyway, so I created a document. You don't have to look at the document, we don't have to go near the document, but I just figured, I wrote it, I put it together this week, it would give us a reference that we can yeah. talk about. Um, I can leave it with you, both of you. Uh, I made copies for everyone. And if there's anything in there, you know, we're not gonna make it through every word. Um, right. And I don't know that you'll ever make it through every word. Um, but if you do, and you see something, or you come up with an idea in a week or two weeks, I'd love that feedback. I'd love to have this be something that we create a dialogue off of, if that's okay. So, without any further ado, I know this looks crazy, but I'm an educator, so I don't know how else to do it. Okay. Um, this is for you guys to, you can, like I said, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to write anything. At any point, you can say, you know what, I've had enough of that. I'm just using this so I don't look stupid, which is certainly a possibility. So, here's what I'm going to ask. That I, one, I've got this little piece of paper. One, that I at least read this and the first page. And then after that, we can go wherever. That just kind of sets up my, my thought process. So, this is an informal document to save space and make things easier. I removed all citations. Everything here is easy to fact check on Google. As a church historian, I assume you'll be familiar with most of the evidence. I can provide a citation on request. Because written text does not transmit tone, I would ask that I be allowed to read as much as possible to set an accurate tone. This document was structured to give a response to Elder Holland's challenge, and you'll see that. We'll talk about that. By looking at the big picture, I intentionally keep things surface level and move linear through the historical timeline. To understand my position, the data should be looked at in its entirety, not each problem in isolation. If we get close enough and stare long enough, tree bark eventually starts to look like elephant skin. But as soon as you step back a few feet, the picture becomes pretty clear. After we see how the concept flows, from beginning to end, I would love to go back to any of the specific plot points and drill down deeper into the subject matter of your choice. This document is not very polished. It was a rough job. Find fault with the data, not the grammar. So, so let me let me just we'll read two paragraphs. At any point, if there's a question, clarifying whatever, what, what are you talking about? Then then we'll stop. And like I said, there's no way. It's it's actually ten pages. The body of what I'm writing is ten pages. I don't anticipate reading 10 pages, but if we can get through the first page or so, then I can just skip through and then we can just talk. We can use this now as a reference to come back, right. if that's okay. Sure. All right, should we begin? Any questions, comments, thoughts? All right, Elder McKay, I was recently visited by my state president, who also happens to be my father-in-law, and asked if the two of you could come to my home and visit with me about church history. I was told I could ask you any question. Until now, I have never attempted to openly discuss my doubts, for good reason. I have ha I've witnessed firsthand just this week that the reaction from believing members can often be emotionally volatile, especially within families. I am not now, nor have I ever tried to convince anyone to leave the church, despite accusations to the contrary. I have no animosity toward the church. I celebrate the good that it does in the world. It has been a blessing in my life. I do, however, feel that doubt is a reasonable position, and that those of us that have arrived at this place did so with integrity. To help organize my thoughts and facilitate a worthwhile discussion, I've created this document. 
This is my defense of doubt. I will admit at 10 pages, it's longer than I anticipated. I guess we'll see how far we get. Much of what I will present could be viewed as critical, but I assure you, it is in no way intended to be disrespectful. Ralph Waldo Emerson gave sound advice for all of us when he said, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. Jeffrey R. Hahn rhetorically challenged members of the church experiencing doubt to account for the origin of the Book of Mormon. He said, if anyone is foolish enough or misled enough to reject 531 pages of heretofore unknown text teeming with literary Semitic complexity without honestly attempting to account for the origin of those pages, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived. And if he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. In response to Elder Hall's statement, I will honestly attempt to account for the origin of those pages and use contemporary historical records to do so. First, I would describe Joseph Smith as a gifted storyteller and, and, and a charismatic eclecticist. That is, Joseph would take the objects, mysteries, and religious discussions of his day and repurpose them within a single religious framework. Second, I will attempt to show that the church has demonstrated a pattern of retroactively changing and or hiding the historical records to fit a new and emerging narrative. So that's my introduction, um, and that's kind of the basis of how this paper works out. So like I said, um, I mean, I, I not, you may want to talk about some of this stuff individually, and it may satisfy and be like, oh, there's the missing piece. And that would be fantastic. Um, but so starting here then, um, I went through and I put a little red line, you can see, where I hit each new topic. That then goes back to um, that kind of that ob that position statement. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right, I'm gonna take another drink of pop here. Any questions, thoughts? Well, I, I think you're right about you've never, in my mind, ever tried to have anybody leave the church. You've, you've been good about that. You probably could take this page to a lot of people, but you haven't, and I appreciate that because you respect what we still believe in. Sure. And, you know, I don't know what you've heard from others, but you know, it's hurt a lot of people the way is starting to mm -hmm. think and act and do. Right. And it hurts us, but I never have ever put it on either of you. Right. Thank you. And, and, and I said this in my previous statement, um, and, and it's true. I, I will, I mean, no matter what happens today or tomorrow or next week or next month, I will die in this church. I mean, I will bleed Mormon. I mean, I, that's who I am. That's, that's my, these are my people. Um, and I'm not trying to destroy the church or destroy anybody. I'm just in a position where my own uncertainty has caused me to withdraw, um, and I just feel like that's a tenable position. But anyway. That's true, but as other people see you and know how intelligent you were and how strong you were in the church, it makes them question. Sure, and I, I understand that. And which is why, I mean, so, so we're going to pause here for a second on this, this dialogue, but um, I think it was this fall, and reached out to us and said something about, have you heard of XYZ? And it was a pretty famous um, kind of uh, position statement against the LDS church. And turned and looked at me and said, look at this text. And I looked at her and I said, don't say a word. Don't, don't even, don't engage. Don't, because we obviously were aware of it, but I didn't want to go, I didn't even want to have the conversation. I didn't even want to do anything. So we just basically said, you know, we're, we're generally aware, like it's the CES letter. Yeah. We're aware of the CES letter. Um, we did, that was it, full stop. Um, we didn't jump into that boat because I don't want to, I don't want to 
validate a position. I don't want to invalidate it. I don't want to, in that situation, I've got my own doubts to work through. I don't want to have this discussion. I want to work it out with somebody else. Um, I've got close siblings. Um, we've never in our life, and I could talk with him about anything, and we have never talked to him about any of this. I just wouldn't. Um, anyway, so back to red line number one. Um, and if there's, like I said, if there's a question in here, I, I am purposely keeping things pretty top level, um, not driving, not diving down too deep. All right. Number one, records show that Joseph Smith was known to possess a magical worldview and was actively involved in using the seer stone to look for buried treasure. Joseph would place the seer stone in a hat and the location of the treasure be revealed. The practice itself was illegal. Church historian Stephen E. Snow notes that, quote, by 1825, young Joseph had a reputation in Manchester and Palmyra for his activities as a treasure seer or someone who used a seer stone to locate gold or other valuable objects buried in the earth, close quote. Joseph Smith conducted at least 18 treasure digs between 1822 and 1827, and in 1826 was put on trial and found guilty for it. This case was brought by Peter Bridgman after watching Joseph Smith's methods of being a seer, of being the seer of the money digging party, um, modern historians have put the no total number of treasure digs that Joseph was involved in at 41. Each in each case, treasure was never found. It is a documented fact that Joseph Smith began his career by breaking the law, committing fraud, and using a seer stone in a hat to find treasure that did not exist and charge people to do it. And I know that's a heavy sentence. I mean, I get it. Um, we were just talking earlier today. Um, Hugh Nibley, and, and I don't even include him in here because Hugh Nibley is not an ecclesiastical authority and he holds no you know, genuinely, but in his book, The Myth Makers, he specifies there's always been this rumor that Joseph was held on trial because of this, and, and he said that if, if that document was ever found, if there was ever a court record where Joseph was found guilty, that would be the most damning evidence in the history against Joseph. Um, and that, again, that's one man's opinion who doesn't hold any, he's not speaking for on behalf of anyone, but, I mean, that's an issue. Um, for some people. And I know that the church recognizes that Joseph Smith was involved in treasure digging. Um, and I don't need to spend a lot of time going through it. Um, I, I don't necessarily find treasure digging in and of itself. You know, it's not like it's a big moral, horrible thing. It just sets the stage for, you know, piece one, two, three, four, and five. Um, all right. In 1823, next paragraph. In 1823, the, an angel supposedly introduced the concept of a written record buried in a nearby hill. That story fits perfectly within the context of Joseph's treasure digging activities and magical worldview. In other words, the, the, the whole narrative behind treasure digging was often that um, you know, an angel would protect it um, or a guardian spirit would protect the treasure. Um, this was the same you know, in, the, in the 18 treasure digs that were easily documented. This is something that we see similar. I mean, there's, there's the talk of, of angels and, and spirits that, that are involved with whatever treasure is, is buried. The contemporary historical record points to a natural evolution from Joseph's treasure digging to the story of buried records and finally culminating with the emergence of the Book of Mormon. Um, and then I'll just last sentence here. What is conspicuously absent in that evolution is the appearance from God. I will get to that later. And I know you have written and spoken a lot on the first vision, and so I'm genuinely excited to, to hear some. Not a lot, just one. At least once. That's more than I've ever been published on the first vision. Um, so I would say this, when Joseph Smith introduced um, the story of, of the Golden Plates, you know, Angel Moroni, um, that's a pretty well-documented historical, you know, put a pin on a map, that's there. Um, Palmyra, Manchester, People's Journals, they, there is 
noise throughout the community about Joseph's claims of finding this, these golden plates. Easily documented, easily in the contemporary historical record. Um, and we talk about, I mean, I'll, I'll, there's one of my pieces in the appendix that just has a list of all of the stuff that was in the newspapers and people's journals and stuff. So that's what we would anticipate. That's what we expect. That makes sense to me. Joseph Smith let people know that there was golden plates and people did not like it. There was persecution. There was mocking. There was people attempting to try to get the plates, that kind of stuff. So flip to page two. And I promise we'll go about this, maybe this page, and then we can, we can move a whole lot faster. Joseph would have had nearly seven years to fabricate a story. His own mother, Lucy Mack Smith, wrote that Joseph would spend evenings telling stories to his family about the characters, concepts, and ideas contained in the book. Beginning as early as 1823, even though he wouldn't claim to gain access to the actual record until 1827, Lucy wrote, quote, During our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that can be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, their mode of traveling, their animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly, as if he had spent his whole life with them. So, prior to actually having a record reading or translating, um, the only contact that Joseph would have had with the Nephite population would have been his once-a-year visits with Moroni. But yet, he's able to, for years in advance, entertain the family with stories about everything to do with this. And again, the skeptic on the outside goes, how on earth and why on earth is he telling stories about a book that hasn't even come out of the ground yet? And if I'm the angel Moroni and I'm visiting once a year with the future prophet, there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about other than the modes of warfare, the animals upon which we ride, the clothing that we wear. Um, so, next red line. Joseph dictated the Book of Mormon by placing the stone in a hat and then reading the words that would appear on the stone. At times, the supposed place were not even in the room. It's worth noting that this is the same stone that Joseph used for treasure digging. Much of the original doctrine and covenants was received using the same manner. <laughs> Renowned LDS historian Richard Bushman said the following, I will begin by saying that we still have pictures in our ward bulletin boards of Joseph Smith with the gold plates in front of him. It's become an irksome point, and I think it's something the church should pay attention to, because anyone who studies the history knows this is not what happened. There is no church historian who says that this is what has happened, yet it's being propagated by the church. And it feeds into the notion that the church is trying to cover up embarrassing episodes and is sort of prettifying its own history. So, I think we ought to just stop that immediately. I'm not sure we need a lot of pictures in our chapels of Joseph looking into his hat, but we certainly should tell our children that's how it worked. It raises the strange question, what in the world were the plates for? Why did we need them on the table if they're just wrapped up in a cloth while he looks into a seer stone? Great question. Next paragraph. The Book of Mormon was published in 1830, seven years after Joseph first introduced the idea. The study of contemporary literature can demonstrate that not a single concept contained in the Book of Mormon, or for that matter, LDS theology, is truly unique. A majority can be found in the written records available to Joseph at the time he introduced them. The biblical passages found in the Book of Mormon can be shown to come directly from the specific King James Bible owned by the Smith family, containing all of the mistakes and anachronisms inherent in that book. Richard Bushman had this to say about early 1800s literature in the Book of Mormon. Quote, there's phrasing everywhere, long phrases, that if you Google them, you'll find them in 19th century writings. The theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology. It reads like a 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible. As an Old Testament, 
The Book of Mormon has a lot of 19th century Protestant material in it, both in terms of theology and wording. I am looking for an explanation of how and why it's there. Grant Hardy, a foremost LDS scholar in the Book of Mormon, wrote, The Isaiah that we see in the Book of Mormon, it's not what we would expect to see from someone who came from Jerusalem in 600 B.C. LDS historian Patrick Mason, who I, from what I understand, sorry, I'm pausing here, you work with Matt Groh? Mm -hmm. So Patrick Mason and Matt Groh have a pretty good relationship. And I, by the way, I love Richard Bushman, Patrick Mason, um, Grant Hardy. I think they're great, intelligent, and, and, and genuinely good men. Um, sorry, back to uh, Patrick Mason. Patrick Mason recognizes the overwhelming evidence of the 19th century influence found in the Book of Mormon and has stated publicly that he is perfectly comfortable with Joseph Smith being an active participant in the creation and composition of the Book of Mormon. In summary, evidence of a 19th century author is littered throughout the text. And then we'll go one more little page and then we'll be, and then I'll go fast forward. By the mid-1830s, in what can reasonably be seen as an attempt to add credibility for Joseph, a new origin story began to take shape. It's one thing to successfully find an ancient buried treasure your seer stone. It's an entirely different thing if God appeared to you and commanded you to start a church. The first vision story was not recorded in a single historical document until 12 years after the event supposedly took place. And that version was recorded in Joseph's private journal and was not shared with anyone. It was discovered by church leadership sometime in the early 20th century. One of the few people with access cut and removed that page from Joseph's original journal. It was taped back into the journal sometime around 1960. The individual thought most likely to be responsible for the removal is Joseph Fielding Smith. He served as official church historian, apostle, and church president. Now, I know that that's probably not new to you. Um, and there's somebody, somebody that was in the history, in the history department pulled that off. The, the reason, obviously, um, Terrell and Fiona Gibbons talk about this, and they talk about how they have no problem if Joseph Fielding Smith did this, um, because genuinely, it's his family that he's worried about, um, his family reputation. It's, it's a little different from a normal historian approaching this. Um, it's his own private journal. It's his family journal. No one else has access to it. He can do what he wants with it. Um, and I don't know that it was him. I mean, it could have been someone else in the church history department, but somebody went in, cut the book, cut the page out, put it back in 50 years later. And if it was him, he's been hearing stories of his grandpa getting, you know, right. like scary stories. You want to protect. You want to protect your family reputation. You want to. And so, again, these are. There is nothing in here that makes me angry or upset. Um, there really isn't. Um, I look at this and it's a puzzle and I get really excited about it and I love to talk about it with unfortunately the only person in the room <laughs> so and she she asks dang good questions and gets good pushback all right next question our next paragraph former assistant former assistant church historian James B Allen had this to say about the first vision there is little if any evidence however that by the early 1830s that Joseph Smith was telling this story in public at least if he were telling it no one seemed to consider it important enough to have recorded it at the time. And no one was criticizing him for it. Not even in his own history did Joseph Smith mention being criticized in this period for telling the story of the first vision. In fact, the fact that none of the available contemporary writings about Joseph Smith in the 1830s and none of the publications of the church in that decade and no contemporary journal or correspondence yet discovered mentions the story of the first vision. 
And then he says this, which I find almost amusing. That's convincing evidence that at best it received only limited circulation in those early days. I would say at best it had no circulation. Um, compare the documented historical facts with what the church currently teaches. And from what Joseph himself said in his own history that we have in the Pearl of Great Price, 18 years later, he said, I soon found that, however, that my telling of the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion and was the cause of great persecution, which continued to increase. Though I was an obscure boy, only between 14 and 15 years of age, and my circumstance in life, such as to make a boy of no consequence in the world, yet men of high standing would take notice sufficient to excite the public mind against me and create a bitter persecution. And this was common among, common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. Um, so we'll pause here for a second. Um, I'll read the one last sentence. The absence of the first vision account in the historical record makes no theological sense. It makes no sense at all. It just often, um, I remember the first time, I was a seminary teacher for 14 years. I remember the first time um, as a seminary, I mean, I was a return missionary. I taught the first vision, had the first vision story memorized, um, taught it, taught it, taught it, taught it. Um, and I remember the first time that I became pretty acquainted with, you know, the multiple versions of the first vision. Um, I remember pulling it apart and looking at it and being able to go, okay, I can, I can make this work. I can make this work. And I made it work. It was, you know, I could see, I could see why someone would have a problem, but I didn't. I didn't have a problem. It wasn't until years later that I became much more aware that it's not, it's not about multiple versions of a first vision. It's the absence of a first vision from the historical record. Um, that, that to me was what my concern was, you know, not what year, how it went, but I mean, I've still spent the time in looking at the years and why and how and who went where, and, you know, George Lane and who was preaching to who with what Methodist Presbyterian stuff. Anyway, so that, that's my concern. Um, now we'll move a little faster through this. Um, any questions? I, I don't, I know I feel like I'm just like, I've got this agenda and I'm running. I just want to make sure that my brain, that this makes sense and then we'll be done and we can, we can go look at motorcycles. I've got cool cars. We'll do whatever, which I would prefer to do. Um, so at this point, the rest of page three, I talk about, um, the concept of the Godhead, um, with the Trinitarian modalist view, which we see in all the early documents, um, from the Book of Mormon, Dr. Covenant's Book of Commandments, which by the way, I have over here, I've got the Book of Commandments, Book of Mormon, um, or sorry, Book of Commandments, Dr. Covenant's Book of Mormon, um, and original times and seasons, um, all of those original documents have a Trinitarian version of God in it. Um, it isn't until the 1830, 1835 to 1837, those editions, that we start to see an adjustment. Um, and, and so I go through and I quote, you know, lectures on faith, talking about, even the fact in, in lectures on faith, they, God doesn't have a body. Um, so over to page four, red line. Um, I'll read that paragraph. This pattern, again, remember, I'm trying to show a pattern. I'm trying to make a statement. This pattern continued with the priesthood. Joseph's ecclesiastical authority was challenged repeatedly by other church, by other church leaders beginning in 1831 and culminating in 1838. The evolution of, the, of his own priesthood authority evolves parallel to those challenges. The concept of priesthood authority and the distinct divisions of Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthood with their assigned offices does not appear in any contemporary historical document or revelation. But they are retroactively written into the scriptural account six years after they supposedly occurred. And then they're backdated in those records. 
The first documentation of any priesthood ordination was Lyman White ordaining Joseph Smith to the high priesthood in June of 1831. Two years too late. Richard Bushman wrote, quote, The late appearance of these accounts raises the possibility of later fabrication. He goes on to add, Did Joseph add the stories of angels to embellish his early history and make himself more of a visionary? If so, he made little of the occurrence. Cowdery was the first to recount the story of John's appearance, not Joseph himself. He revised his own revelations, adding new material, splicing one to the other, and altering the wording as he saw fit. He felt authorized to expand the revelation as his understanding expanded. I'm going to keep going. I was going to talk about Cowdery, um, his motivations there. But anyway, early church historian B.H. Roberts said there's no definite account of the Melchizedek priesthood restoration, even in the history of the prophet Joseph Smith, or for that matter, in any of our annals. While apologists have worked to narrow the timeline, there's also not a recorded date of the restoration of the priesthood visits from John the Baptist. David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses, said, I have never heard that an angel ordained Joseph or Oliver to the Aaronic priesthood until the year 1835, 36, so on, in Ohio. I do not believe that John the Baptist ever ordained Joseph and Oliver. So the date that we have with, with John the Baptist is retroactively just put on the date that Oliver and Joseph got baptized. But in all of those records... They never mentioned John. They never mentioned an angel. It just does not exist. So there's no, and clearly no Melchizedek priesthood. Last paragraph um, on that page. Once again, we see the pattern of retroactively changing the historical record to fit a new and emerging narrative. The most frustrating aspect of it is that the church acts as if it didn't happen. Elder Hubie Brown said, none of the early revelations of the church has been revised. And the Doctrine and Covenants stands as printed, including sections 5 and 7. Elder Boyd K. Packer stated, of course there have been changes and corrections. Anyone who's done even limited research knows that. When properly reviewed, such corrections become a testimony for, not against, the truth of the books. Now, I add, with emphasis, that such changes have been basically minor refinements in grammar, expression, punctuation, or clarification. Nothing fundamental has been altered. Compare those statements with the images in the appendix. So... We don't, I'm not going to go through them all right now, but if you just go back, the last 20 pages of the appendix is um, the changes to the Book of Commandments, Doctrine and Covenants, and Times and Seasons, all of which, every one of these is now in our Doctrine and Covenants. Um, obviously, some are very much grammatical, but there is no way you can look at that and say fundamental stuff wasn't added or taken away. Some of the most fundamental concepts of the priesthood are visibly seen on those pages as not being in the original and then added years later and this document shows that. All right, now we're going to go really fast because I don't want to bore anybody. 1835, we've got the Egyptian mummies. Um, at the time, no one in the world knew anything about um, how to translate hieroglyphics. We get the roadshow comes into town, and Joseph ends up in possession of, of the mummies and the papyrus. Um, anyone who's, I mean, this is probably point number one on someone's faith crisis concept of the Book of Abraham. The whole point is, we'll go down to um, the LDS Gospel Topics essay. It's this third paragraph. Um, the LDS Gospel Topics essay on the Book of Abraham admits, none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the Book of Abraham. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the Book of Mormon. These fragments date to between the 3rd century BCE, which is before Common Era, and the first century Common Era, long after Abraham lived. Some apologists 
suggest that, and I'm not using the phrase apologist derogatory. I think that's a legitimate scientific phrase, and I, I respect apologists. Some apologists suggest that the original Egyptian source material is missing, the missing scroll concept. Others say that the papyrus was clearly a catalyst for revelation. Both theories are impossible to reconcile. Once you see the verses clearly show the text of the book of Abraham is coming directly from the facsimiles. One example of this is Abraham chapter 1 when it says, And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, and they did those, as they did those virgins upon the altar. That you may have knowledge of this altar, I refer you to the representation of the commencement of the record. Then we look back and we see the altar, we see the person laying on top of it. Um, same thing with all of the facsimiles and the images. You know, we've got the number one, number two, number three, that kind of stuff. This fits the pattern of the charismatic eclecticist. Egyptomania was sweeping the country. A roadshow with Egyptian artifacts came to town. Everyone looked for Joseph um, for answers. So what did he do? He took a common Egyptian funeral text and said it was an ancient book of scripture. A book that specifically discussed priesthood authority at the exact time that Joseph's own authority is being challenged. No one knew then what everyone knows now. That is, the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the book of Abraham. Next one. And this one I put in here because it's one I think it, it works with what I want to do, but it's, a, it's my own personal hobby horse. As you can see, if you, if you look around, this will make more sense. And I'll go fast. One year before Joseph obtained the mummies, he led roughly 200 men known um, as Zion's camp from Ohio to Missouri. He described the journey in a letter to his wife. He talks about you know, going over the plane and the Nephites. And then, toward the, the end of that paragraph, on June 3rd, 1834, while camped on a bluff above the Illinois River, some of the men discovered bones in a Native American burial mound. John Taylor, future president of the church, who was one of the four eyewitnesses to record the event, published this in the Times and Seasons. Quote, on the top of the mound there were stones which presented the appearance of three altars, having been erected one above the altar, other. According to the ancient order, the human bones were strewn all over the, the ground. The brethren procured a shovel and a hoe, removing the earth to the depth of about a foot, discovered a skeleton of a man, almost entire. Between his ribs was a Lamanitish arrow, which eventually produced his death. Elder Brigham Young retained the arrow. The brethren carried the pieces of the skeleton to Clay County. The con contemplation and the scenery before us produced peculiar sensation in our bosoms. And the visions of the past being opened to my understanding by the Spirit of the Almighty, I discovered that the person whose skeleton was before us was a white Lamanite, a large, thick-set man, a man of God. He was the warrior, chieftain, under the great prophet Omendavis, who was known from the Hill Cumorah to the eastern sea to the Rocky Mountains. His name was Zelph. The curse was taken from him, or at least part, or at least in part. One of his thigh bones was broken, a stung flown by the sling, battle before his death, and was killed in battle. There's the, that's the, supposedly the Joseph Smith state. We got four other you know, future leaders of the church that tell their own versions of that almost exactly. Next paragraph. Once again, Joseph demonstrates himself as a gifted storyteller and charismatic eclecticist. He's literally picking up the bones from a Hopewell burial mound and repurposing them into his religious framework. Later carbon dating from archaeologists. Thank you. Thank you. Too much reading. This is why we have other kids reading class. Have conclusively identified the bones in that mound all date to between 90 and 100 CE, current era. That's the period of universal peace mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The next spot there talks about Adam on the Almond. On this, you know, not long after we get we get uh, um, up in the past far far west, up in the Grand River, and he identifies there's more altars. This is Adam on the Almond. This is where Adam was at. This is where Adam's coming back. Tells amazing stories about it. We all know Adam on the Almond. Most people know Zelf's Mound. 
But the point of this is, and we have before that red thing, we got modern, you know, Brigham Young and Heber C. Campbell talking about these, this great lesson that they learned. And it's to me, it's following this pattern. When something, of, I mean, when anything of like discussion comes up, and it's pretty interesting, everyone turns to Joseph, and he has the religious, historical, ancient answer for what they're looking at. Books in ground. We've got the, the, the priest that he ties back, obviously, um, the book of Abraham. We've got Zelf. We've got um, Adam and Adam. All right, this next one's really quick. The temperance movement. The temperance movement in the public debate, it created discussing abstaining from alcohol, smoking tea, coffee, and eating a diet mainly of grains and health codes. Um, of grains, um, sorry, was common by the late 1820s. And then I list three different health journals in 1806, 1830, 1829, all publishing identical concepts of the word of wisdom. Um, and even in the churches, now you know video, which they produce, which are pretty good. Um, it says that the idea was not unique to Joseph. On February 26th, the citizens of Kirtland had observed the National Day of Temperance. On February 27th, the very next day, Joseph Smith received the revelation known today as the Word of Wisdom. It reads like it was taken directly out of one of the previously mentioned health journals. Again, we see the pattern of Joseph taking something common and repurposing it within his own religious framework. Many members today would be surprised to learn that our historical records clearly show that Joseph Smith consumed alcohol up until the day he died. The following is one example from an entry in Joseph's own journal. 1 p.m., rode with uh, Dr. Richards, or in Port Rockwell, called on Davis to vote, paid Manhard 90 bucks, met George Adams, paid him 50, went to John P. Green's, paid him another, another brother 200, drank a glass of beer at Mosher's, called William Clayton, Dr. Richards, or in Port Rockwell, called the doctor, returned home four and a half. The sentence in bold that mentions beer was removed when the journal was published as part of the correlated books that we know as the history of the church. By studying the actual historical records surrounding the word of wisdom, not only do we see the pattern of charismatic eclecticism, but we see the church hiding history that doesn't fit with its current narrative. By the way, I don't, I, I'm okay with a person reading something and getting revelation from it. I just, it just fits well into the same thing. It's the topic, it's the, it's the most common topic in town. What's everyone talking about? Word of wisdom. What's everyone talking about? Egypt. All right. Now on to the last one, um, well, almost last one. <clears throat> During the same time, Joseph was involved in a behavior that by many standards would be considered dishonest and by most immoral. In 1833, Joseph Smith, then 27, had a polygamous or extramarital relationship with Fanny Alger, age 16, who was the live-in maid for the Smith family. Oliver Cowdery described it as a dirty, nasty, filthy affair. And Joseph Smith's own son recalls his mother Emma's version saying that one night she missed Joseph and Fanny. She went to the barn, saw him and Fanny in the barn together. She looked through the cracks, saw the transaction. Um, the church claims that this was a marriage, but no marriage records exist. And the only mention of a marriage comes 60 years after the event. The church's own essay contends the following. Quote, fragmentary evidence suggests that Joseph Smith acted on the angel's first command by marrying a plural wife, Fanny Elger, in Kirtland, Ohio in the mid-1830s. Several Latter-day Saints who lived in Kirtland reported decades later that Joseph Smith had married Elger, who lived and worked in the Smith household. And he had obtained her consent and that of her parents. Assuming that's true, number one, that was done without Emma's knowledge. Two, it was against the law. Three, it was forbidden in current church teachings. And four, Joseph had yet to receive any of the sealing keys associated with marriage. By 1841, Joseph was engaged in polygamy and polyandry in Nauvoo with dozens of women. 
From the church's essay, quote, following his marriage to Louisa Beeman and before he married other single women, Joseph Smith was sealed to a number of women who were already married. Todd Compton puts that number at 11. The church often frames polyandry as if Joseph is saving a woman from bad marriages. The reality is that many of these women were already married to faithful, active members of the church. In fact, one of them was married to an apostle. This is a direct violation of Doctrine and Covenants 132, which is clear that these men are only to espouse virgins. Some, of, some would argue unsuccessfully these relationships were not sexual. The concept is in direct violation of God's only justification for polygamy, which is to raise up a righteous seed as stated in the Book of Mormon. In 1842, Joseph Smith, acting as the prophet, stated publicly, and it ended up in the Doctrine and Covenants, said, Inasmuch as this church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare, and we will believe, that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband, except in the case of death where either is at liberty to marry again. We have given the above rule of marriage that is only practiced in this church. At the time that statement was published, Joseph had 20 wives. 1843, we get Doctrine and Covenants 132. Um, we'll skip. That Most people are pretty familiar with 132. Interesting stuff there. But um, down to the first major paragraph. By the time of Joseph's death, he was sealed to between 30 and 40 women, with the youngest being 14 years old. And again, 11 women that were already married. Joseph told some of these young women that an angel with a drawn sword would destroy him if they did not consent to joining him in polygamy. Of all the times in the history of the church that God could have intervened in the lives of mankind by sending an angel with a sword, remember, this is the one that God chose. All of this was done in secret. While denying polygamy to the general church membership without the knowledge of the husbands and up to 36 wives unknown to his wife, Emma. Patrick Mason recently said, a lot of that looks a whole lot like sin. Sexual behaviors that I find deeply disturbing. Speaking hypothetically about the possibility to have his own teenage daughter married to Joseph Smith, Mason said, had Joseph approached me about polygamy, I hope I would have said no. That brings us into the, those last two paragraphs there, talk about the novel Expositor, um, that Joseph then ordered the destruction of the press and the burning of the documents. There wasn't, a, to this day, that I've ever heard of, there's not a single unfactual thing that was stated in the novel Expositor, um, other than they didn't like Joseph. The next line um, goes through the, the endowment, and I guess we just, we'll skip to the, the fact of Joseph Smith eclectic surrounding the LDS endowment. He's a mason. We know that concept. We can talk about it more. We'll go to the last paragraph there, I guess. This is only two paragraphs anyway. But it appears evident that Joseph Smith took the signs, tokens, penalties, symbols, washing anointings, new name, and clothing from the Masonic ceremony. From its introduction in 1842 until today, the church has consistently explained away those overwhelming similarities to masonry, with the idea that masonry was a corrupt and apostate endowment. Brigham Young explained, we have the true masonry. The masonry of today is received from the apostasy which took place in the days of Solomon and David. They have now and then a thing that is correct. We have the real thing. That concept is problematic since historians now universally agree the Masonic ceremony began about 2,000 years after Solomon's temple existed, and the temple was focused almost entirely on animal sacrifice. All right. Um, that's, I mean, that's a, just a quick version of, of, of running through some of the things that I see Joseph Smith. He takes something, he trying to figure it out, understand life, and then he repurposes it within a single framework. So the top of page nine. Some historians, and I'm, I'm a big, as Ron said at the beginning, I love history. It is my thing. Um, uh, Leonard Arrington was the book, the Gregory Prince biography. Loved the book. Um, 
And I am so stinking honored that you're in my house. Genuinely. This is, what did I say when I woke up this morning? He said, it feels like Christmas morning. <laughs> I said, it feels like Christmas morning. Um, to be able to meet and talk, I would talk with anybody. Anyway, so some historians have genuinely tried to be more open and honest. Church President Heber J. Grant required B.H. Roberts to censor some documents when compiling the history of the church. Elder Roberts responded, quote, I desire, however, to take occasion disclaiming any responsibility for the mutilating of that very important part of President Young's manuscript. And also to say that while you had the physical powers of eliminating that passage from history, I do not believe you had any moral right to do so. Stephen Snow, who I'm sure you uh, are very familiar with, LDS church historian said, I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed or at least not give access to the information. But the world has changed in the last generation with access to information on the internet. We can't continue with that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. And then Richard Bushman's infamous um, statement. In 2016, Richard Bushman was recorded saying, quote, I think for the church to remain strong, it has to reconstruct its narrative. The dominant narrative is not true. It can't be sustained. The church has to absorb all this new information or it will be on very shaky grounds. And that's what it's trying to do. And that will be a strain for a lot of people, older people especially. Now, to clarify that quote, he went on the record, because that one was recorded without him knowing. He went on the record and said, this is what I meant. We must be willing to modify the account according to the newly authenticated facts. If we don't, we will weaken our position. The whole church, from the top to the bottom, has to adjust to the findings of our historians. It would appear, however, that current church leadership disagrees. In 2017, one year after Richard Bushman's statement, by the way, we're only one page away, we're, we're going to make it. After Richard Bushman's statement, M. Russell Ballard and Dellen H. Oaks said the following, quote, Some are saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there's more than one version of the first vision, which is just not true. The facts are, we don't study we don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. But it's this idea that the church is hiding something, which we would have to say there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. So just trust us wherever you are in the world. And you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. Speaking to married couples just two years later, Elder Oaks had this to add. Matters of church history and doctrinal issues have led some spouses to inactivity. Some spouses wonder how to best go about researching and responding to such issues. Quote, I suggest that research is not the answer. Close quote. The implication of those two statements are profound. In short, church leaders have never hidden in any way anything ever from anybody. And if a member has concerns or doubts about history, it's because we don't study. We don't go back and search what's been said on the subject. But then immediately contradicting themselves with trust us, research is not the answer. What better evidence can you get from someone that their position is weak or that they're hiding something than having them ask you not to research it? There is a significant difference between the act of disclosure and the act of discovery. It's the equivalent of an unfaithful spouse admitting to an affair, only after having been caught in one. In recent years, when the church has appeared to be transparent, it's been reactionary. The church has been forced to the table. In each instance, the problems, or the problem was discovered by the public, not disclosed by church leaders. The church itself teaches, quote, we can also intentionally deceive others by silence or by telling only part of the truth. Whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that's not true, 
We're not being honest. As the church historian, I'm aware that none of this is new to you. If any of the above information that I've presented is factually incorrect, please let me know and I will correct it. I have no expectation that this information would change your belief or testimony of Joseph Smith, nor do I have any desire to. As stated before, my desire is that you would consider that those of us that have come to a different conclusion than you are not lazy learners, lax disciples, foolish, or dishonest, as implied by those in the highest positions of church leadership, and then repeated by members throughout the church. I would hope, instead, that we could be treated with respect and our position recognized as valid. In conclusion, as I previously stated in my introduction, there is a reasonable explanation that can account for the creation of the Book of Mormon and LDS theology, other than the current LDS narrative. That is, Joseph Smith engaged in what LDS historian Terrell Givens calls bricolage. It is the art of repurposing objects into a new interpretation. Givens goes on to say, the term that I would use is inspired eclecticist. That's a problem for a lot of Latter-day Saints who have read a very different version of history, where Mormonism erupted in an absolute vacuum. Close quote. I believe that Joseph was interacting with the world around him. He was taking the objects, stories, religious discussions of his day, and, sorry, religious discussions of his day, even his own sexual desires, and I'm not saying that negatively, I'm saying that's how he's trying to understand them, um, and repurposing them within a single religious framework creating as he went, and changing whenever he needed. I've studied the apologetic response to each of the things that I presented, and I find them unconvincing. Philosopher William James once wrote, When a thing is new, people say, that's not true. Later, when a truth is obvious, they say, it's not important. Finally, when its importance cannot be denied, they say, anyway, it's not true. I'm genuinely grateful that you would sacrifice your time to visit with me about church history. If you made it this far, you're probably regretting that decision. <laughs> but I hope not. You once said, I'm called the church historian. But in truth, the real historians are the people that I work with. I preside over a department that is full of absolutely brilliant people. I believe Elders Jensen, Snow, and yourself are men of integrity. I also believe that the calling of church historian must be the single most difficult calling in the church. You yourself admit that you're not a trained historian. You're a trained lawyer. You've spent your career representing large corporations. Now you've been called to represent a new client, the LDS Church, where you oversee the church history department and the real historians on your client's behalf. I have no problem with that. You have been given the daunting task of bridging the gap between the two. As you speak to members, advise local leaders, listen to historians, and sit in presiding councils. Please remember this. In the end, I did not have a faith crisis. I had a trust crisis. I have been taught that faith is the belief in things unseen. But to disbelieve what you can in fact see is not faith, it's fantasy. My experience over the last 10 years with thousands of hours spent researching and studying both sides of these issues has been physically exhausting and emotionally difficult. Some would say that I never had a testimony in the first place. I know that's impossible to measure a testimony, but here's what I can quantify. I served in an honorable full-time mission. I've read the Book of Mormon countless of times. I attended the temple faithfully. I was an EFY counselor. I was married in the temple with Elder Neil A. Maxwell officiating. I was a full-time seminary teacher for 14 years. 
I serve as a counselor in two bishoprics. I pulled a handcart through Martin's Cove. I've sat in the office of and discussed church history with Lachlan Mackay, an apostle of the community of Christ Church historian and direct descendant of Joseph Smith. I've participated in an archaeological dig at the original Smith family homestead in Nauvoo. I stood atop Zelf's Mound. I've spent weeks on end, year after year in Nauvoo, studying, listening, and exploring church history. I've stood in Carthage at the place of Joseph Smith's death in reverence at least a dozen times. I've anointed the sick and laid hands upon my dying father with President Thomas S. Monson. My entire worldview has been disrupted, and almost every single personal relationship that I have has been affected. Please believe me when I tell you that I've only arrived at this conclusion after a lengthy, careful, and heartfelt investigation. So sorry. I'll be sorry. And the rest is just yeah. stuff. So, so I'm about to speak to BYU-Idaho using some of the phrases you used. <sighs> and I, I will start with a quote that that has kind of been my moving, I don't know, I, was, I don't want to call it a motivator, but it's from Joseph F. Smith. And he said this, he said, from my boyhood, I have desired to learn the principles of the gospel in such a way and to such an extent that it would matter not to me who might fall from the truth, who might make a mistake, who might fail to continue to follow the example of the master. My foundation would be sure and certain in the truths that I have learned. And so I've made that my quest, and I, I, I will commend it to the students at uh, BYU-Idaho, that you have a testimony that is built on a sure and certain foundation, so that regardless of, and I, and I, would, I, would, I would love it if you would if you would change your title. Um, because I will talk about reasons to doubt. And I, I will just admit all over the place, and you put it in a booklet, and there's more reasons to doubt. There just are. But Jesus said, and, and here's the question I put to them leading up to, and I, I have none of their responses because I can't get on where they put this question. <clears throat> there are reasons. We live in a troubling world. There are reasons to be troubled. Jesus says, be not troubled. He said it in the New Testament. He said it in the Doctrine and Covenants. There are reasons to doubt. He says, doubt not. There are reasons to fear. He says, fear not. And my question to the students is, how are you doing? I seriously want to know, how are you doing this? If it's possible to be to be in a world that is full of troubling things, how do you be not troubled? Um, that that for me in its most recent version is the Ukraine conflict. It was just so troubling to me. In a world in which reasons to doubt, and I'll use this phrase, swirl and hiss about you, how do you doubt not? In a world where there are reasons to be fearful, 
how do you fear not? And I think the answer, at least in part, is what Joseph, Joseph F. Smith said. You, you build upon a foundation that is so sure and certain that the rest of it may exist, but it doesn't shake you. So then the question is, what is that foundation? And it ha has to be Jesus Christ. It just has to be Jesus Christ. So it leads me to a, to a question of you. What is your foundation? What, what, this, is, this is doubt. Give me sure. Give me faith. So, um, what do you have faith in? And I what still, is sure and certain in your life? Sure, family for sure. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And I, um, you can jump in on any of this. I know it's directed to me, but it would include both of us. Um, I still feel like I have a good relationship with Christ. Um, my, I, I, I genuinely feel like I can't trust the information that I got from church leadership. And which is difficult with my relationship with Christ because I understand the language that I use, the, the lenses that I look through, the metaphors that I understand all came through the lens of, of LDS theology. And so the Christ that I see is in a lot of ways an LDS Christ. But I spent, I mean, I've, and I still do, I spend a lot of time um, trying to understand um, Christ through just a biblical and, and the Bible's got as many problems historically yeah, you, as anything that I you could present. You could write this same thing about any right. religion. Of, of course. Yeah. yeah. Maybe thicker. I'm, I'm sure of it. Yeah. I'm sure of it. And, and so, um, and that's why I said, that, like, my faith, my faith, it's, it's trust. It's, I can see someone lying to me. I mean, I deal with it every day at work. And as soon as someone lies to me, at that moment, I no longer can, can trust that person. I mean, I'm going to now go and I'm going to pull every piece of evidence and data and I can, and then I'm going to lean on the data as hard as I can because that person's lost credibility. And I understand in my own life, when I have lost credibility with other people, there's not a word I can say with that relationship that will ever restore. It's a burnt bridge. And I get Jesus that. is still the Savior. Um, and so back to this concept of, of what I do and how I do um, with this, and this is going to sound... This is either damning on my part, and, and it is what it is, but to be completely authentic with both of you to understand where I come from, I had a personal experience that caused me to not just doubt. I knew because I had, I had quantifiable data. I knew that I was not listening to the Spirit. I knew that I could not take my understanding of what the Holy Ghost felt like, my personal experience. You know, we all have powerful spiritual experiences. Um, I have had in my life a handful of powerful, life-changing spiritual experiences, which is where my testimony came from. I was aware of 90% of this as a seminary teacher. Like I said, I've sat with Lachlan Mackay, um, who's an amazing human being, and, and talked where he was, I mean, he was being faithful as he could, but just presenting, you know, different ways to look at church history. And it didn't even, it was, it was just water off a duck's back. Uh, it was just a great conversation between two, whatever, I'm not a historian, he is. But when I realized, when I realized that I cannot trust the leadership of the church, and I'm not saying that about you two, and that's not it at all, but as a, as a historical memory, I can show you that they're not honest. That puts a major chasm in my ability to then access anything that comes from their source. 
not, not to nitpick, because I think that this man's an amazing person, but to give you one example, and it just popped in my head, President uh, Holland standing in general conference. This is the very Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith turned the page over. That wasn't the very Book of Mormon. And within seconds, historians who were familiar with the Book of Mormon were able to go, why bring up a prop? Get the real one. Guarantee you could have got it. And so it's that's a small thing. But it, all of a sudden you go, why would you lie about something so small? And now I can't trust anything else. And so the trust issue was my big problem. Then when I cannot, and I know this, like I said, it's damning for myself, but when I cannot trust the Holy Ghost, and that sounds so horrible coming from LDS theology, but I can't. I can verifiably, quantifiably prove that what I knew to be a revelatory experience was not. And that broke me in every way possible. And I had to pick myself up and rebuild everything from the ground and go, what's real? What is real? We all watched the church movie years ago. What is real? And so I have withdrawn. I have backed off and went, I don't trust the church. I just don't. Um, I don't trust the Holy Ghost. I still have powerful spiritual experiences. To this day, I get promptings. I get whatever. I mean, the things that I would have said. I had a revelation, a great idea. It solves a problem at work. It solves a problem at home. Helps me find a big animal on the mountain. Whatever, however that works. I have moments. I feel at peace. I feel... I mean, I have amazing, beautiful moments with my family, with my, with the with God, with the Spirit, with whatever it is. But even those things, at the end of the day, I go, might have been, might might not have been, might have been, might have been something deep in my subconscious. But I appreciate them. I still pray. I still thank you for whatever that was and however this works. But if you know, like you said, this could have been said about any church. I absolutely know that. And the arguments that we use against all those other churches, why aren't those valid against this same thing? Yeah, I, I, I don't know of anybody who is or should be bashing other churches. I think we're, we're well beyond right. that. And right. I, and, I, yeah. and I don't know anyone that ever has. I'm just saying the same thought so, process. So here's, what you're, here's where you're getting at. God had a really good thing going, and then he put people in it. And, and people have messed it up ever since. I mean, if you're gonna, if, if this is gonna stop you from believing, then you should you should stop believing prior to 1820. You should stop believing when Moses looked around so and to make sure nobody's looking, then killed the man and, and hid the body. Sure. Or you should you should go before that and wonder why, you know, think about drunk naked Noah. Or Peter the ear cutter offer, and, and there's all sorts of. Re- I mean, this when he put people in the mix, it got messy, and it's and it has stayed messy ever since. So that's why that's why I say make your foundation Christ, and study him the best way you know how. The New Testament is wonderful. To me, it it leads me to a church. There's got to be a church because Jesus said to Peter, look, I'm going to build a church. It's going to be built on the rock of Revelation. It's going to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven by which you bind and loose on earth and in heaven. Um, baptism was, a, was something Jesus also showed us, faith, repentance. Um, where, so those things help me understand, and those have got to be part of Jesus and what he taught. Um, although you might have lost trust, to me, the Book of Mormon 
instead of jumping, and this is, in, this is my, me- my message, instead of jumping to the collateral conclusion that if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph was a prophet, and this is God's church, just read it for its primary purpose. Go have an experience with Jesus in that book. But in any event, seek Christ and make him your sure foundation. And this also comes out of the Book of Mormon. You taught it. Helaman 5.12, that's got to be your foundation. Because if he's your foundation and you build upon that foundation, you cannot fall. You cannot. I mean, it's not just you will not fall. I mean, it's you don't fall. So go build upon Christ and then and then just understand that you, even in, in your best efforts, have become someone else's reason to doubt. And so have I. And so has Moses, Noah, Joseph, Peter, and everyone else who's ever lived has given somebody a reason to doubt. And so I would, I, I would hope that you would make, make all of this a book about reasons to doubt. And it's not this. It's this. <laughs> I mean, I could add to sure. I could add to it. Right. Yeah. And we've had that conversation. Okay, so where, where does this thread end? I mean, you start to reevaluate your political views, your views on, on whatever it would be. You look at, um, like you said, religious, comp- all the way back. So why, I can go to the Bible. Do we just go through the Bible? Do we toss the Bible? Yeah. Do we, yeah. yeah I get so, let me tell you where this path eventually ends. It's a logical conclusion that you end in atheism. Because if you believe in God and you believe in Christ, then there are some other things that follow that start just getting all sorts of sure. It just this just messes it up. And, and this and any other book you would write about any other religion um, that's based on human error. So let me ask you this question. Off the top of your head, as we went through that, where was I? I mean, was I wrong on any so, major so, point? So I would I would I would turn to my my colleagues in the church history department, the 1826 trial, for example. Right. I'm not as familiar with that, but I know it's not quite as clear as you're making it here. It's in the Joseph papers. It's one of the printed. Right. You can go through and read. Found right. right. guilty. <laughs> paid ten dollars. Okay. So so the and then then the the polygamy thing and his uh, Brian Hales, who's a pretty good. Sure. Uh, Brett Brian. Brian yeah. Scott. So I, he's I think he's reliable. He would put Fanny Alger in a different place in history, but but would say, yeah, they were married or they had a relationship. Um, I the whole the whole polygamy thing or plural marriage. Um, here's how it's been described to me: it it was messy going in, and it was messy going out. It was messy getting out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you study that. We had we had apostles. No, she's not John Taylor Jr. Sure. Yeah. So it was messy going in, messy going out. For a period of time, I would probably figured out how to do it in a. I mean, it, it worked. But it was messy going in. It was messy going out. If it was for the purpose stated in Jacob two, then Joseph wasn't very good at it at all. Sure. Because there is absolutely no evidence that he had a child by anyone but Emma. Right. So so he wasn't infertile. Emma wasn't infertile. I doubt all the other women were infertile, but he, but I, I don't know how much sexual activity there was. But even the church says that there yeah. likely was yeah. sexual activity. Yeah. That was not necessarily the primary motive. The illegality of the marriages, I'm not sure about because I've been, I, I attended a wedding, I attended a wedding 
where the the girl was underage, but with parental consent, it became legal. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Helen Mark Kimball, for example, Heber C is the one who came right. up with that idea. Hey, and they were sealed. And was there a relationship physically? We just we right. just don't know. So there's there, there so there a little question. So um, again, I those were things that I had wrapped my head around. Yeah. It was the. It's what appears to me yeah. to be the the intentional uh, line. I mean, yeah. so here's I I taught I taught the party line yeah. as well as anybody taught the party line. I did not ever teach or have access through any of the correlative curriculum to what the real. It's a yeah. different picture. You know what I mean? And the church is like, look, if you're if you're painting a picture that's not very accurate, you're not being very honest, right. and that hurts me. As a person who had obviously been called a liar at times in my life, and you want to figure out where you screw up and, and you want to be better and you want to be honest, you offer apologies and you come clean. And that was our – so on, just on a real side note, Lachlan Mackay. Um, have you ever met him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great guy. He's my um, cousin. Yeah, oh, great right. guy. Well, somewhere back in the day, um, we used to spell our name M-A-C-K-A-Y. He uh, – means son of fire. He and I had a conversation years ago. Um, we've, had, we've talked multiple times through the years. But he blew my mind with – he assumed that I – because I was a seminary teacher and I must have given off some sort of like I was more important than I was. And he told me straight up that he said that he had been in contact with church leadership and some of his close relatives um, on helping them work through the inoculation program that was going to be introduced to seminaries and institutes, <clears throat> trying to say – what would you have done different? Lachlan McCombs, what would the church of, you know, the community of Christ, how would you have done this different 1999? If you could go back to 1999 again and reframe church history, what would you do different? And so and that got us into this conversation that was basically the community of Christ or the RLDS church in the late 90s, their own historians, as Terrell oh, Gibbons. They, they, had, they had a rough. They, uh, yeah, rough. it imploded. That's rough. Because their historians came to the leadership and said, our dominant narrative is not true. And they just pulled the plug. They just went, well, let's tell everyone. Let's tell everyone. And that backfired. That was a plug, a big, um, big dream. And, and I see the writings of Richard Bushman and Terrell Gibbons and Patrick Mason, and, and they're all saying the same thing. How do we transition between the, the correlated history and the authentic documented history? Um, and that's why you've got the world's toughest job with the internet now. Yeah. It's tough. And so I, I'm, yeah, like I said, I am 100%. I, the things that you've said to me, I, thank you. They, they help me significantly. They still don't help me with my one diagnosis of I can't, why should I trust? And you say, you know, a lot of people cause you to doubt. I know they can. I know they can cause me to doubt. Why would I trust someone who I know has continued to lie to me? I mean, I'll find someone else to trust, someone who's being more honest. Um, I'll, I'll show you where they're not trustworthy. You're, you're dealing with people, and, and every one of us has screwed up and, and shouldn't be trusted. Uh, so, so how do we trust and who do we trust? And that brings me back to Jesus. And so get, I, I would make this a faith journey because this, this is not a faith journey. Sure. This is a doubt journey, and I would make it a faith journey. And that doesn't mean you kind of you, you figure out how to ignore this or, or, right. or put your head in the sand. The, the message that I will deliver to the students is you, you cannot, what, what do we do with human error? You cannot hide it, and that may have been our, our MO at one point, 
nor nor can you hide from it. And that may have been somebody's somebody's teachings. Oh, ignore that. There's nothing to see here. Um, but seeking it out and wallowing in it by making it a, a an emphasis of study is not productive right. either. That and us, I will say this. It makes us fault finders. This may sound... You may not believe me. I hope you do. I genuinely, I will be as honest with you two as you want. I will give you every piece of dirty laundry that I have, and it's a basement full. I have never attempted to write a word or express my thoughts in my entire life until this week. Yeah. Never, under any circumstances. And the only reason that I did it, being completely transparent, and this is not attacking anyone, but a sister-in-law of mine this week um, said to that she believed that I wrote a document for somebody else on a basis of anti-Mormon leaving the church. And I've never even considered the thought. And so one, I was I knew this was coming, and I just thought, I'm going to put my, my thoughts down. I've never even and like I said, we have shared doubts before, but never going in looking for doubts. I was so arrogant, and probably still am, um, but when I first ran headlong into my problems. Um, like I said, I was aware of 99%. I didn't go looking for anything. I'd been there. I'd read this stuff. I, you know, I got William Clayton's journal. I read that 10 years ago. Richard Bushman read it. Didn't even bat an eye. Um, didn't have a problem. I quote Richard Bushman a lot because I think he's a great source. Um, but none of those things I wasn't looking for, and they did not bother my testimony. They just didn't. It wasn't until I had a a, a modern situation that. I was positive I was under the influence of the Spirit. I just knew I was. It was the most powerful, and it hit, checked every box. And then, obviously, with my understanding of some church history, I put all of my pieces together, and then it backfired, and I realized I don't know how to feel the Spirit. And if I don't know how to feel the Spirit, I don't know what to do. So now, now, you're, now you're with John Locke, and he made this observation, and I'm, I... And we're all subject to it. We are all subject to this. Um, and he was he was a skeptic. I mean, he was sure. not. He was he was kind of anti-religion, in fact. And it was for this reason, or at least this is one of the reasons. He he identified the difficulty that some people, or maybe all people, have distinguishing between quote the delusions of Satan and the inspirations of the Holy Ghost. Satan, he said, can transform himself into an angel of light. And they who are led by this son of the morning are as fully satisfied of the illumination, are as strongly persuaded that they are enlightened by the Holy Spirit as anyone who is so. They acquiesce and rejoice in it, are prompted in their actions by it, and nobody can be more sure nor more in the right than they. Close quote. So, so it's it's. I believe in. Well, first of all, I believe in the law of opposites. That there is a powerful spiritual communication from God, or, or the possibility, sure. of, and and also from the from the other side. From the opposition. Yeah. So so I <laughs> I hope you would allow for that, and then just hang. Hundred percent. Yeah. Just hang. Just hang in there. But but I would tweak your journey into what what am I going to have faith in? Right. What do I believe? Maybe that'll be a good exercise. Right. What do I firmly Irrefutably, undeniably, it's just in my soul. I believe this, and I hope it is. There is a God in heaven, and Jesus is the Christ. Mm-hmm. I hope that's there. And that is there. Then you can build on that. And I, I told 
this, you know, I, I never missed a sacrament meeting until July. Yeah. In July was the first time I ever missed a sacrament. Um, and I told that it was to the point that I would, I would come to church with good intentions. And I wouldn't say I never said anything in church, never disrupted anything, never caused any problem. Um, but, you know, obviously with different looking through a different lens, it became it became this. It was mentally difficult for me to sit there in a church and I would, you know, the relationships are great. I have no problem with any of the members. That was fine. But then I would go up and, and this is not on a Sunday, but I would be up in the mountains and in the mountains without anything going on and me and the, whatever. And I'd see a sunrise. I'd see a sunset. I'd see something. I'd feel something. And I would have peace. And I would say, I'm feeling in the mountains the way I should be feeling in church. And then I'd go back, you know, to try church one more time. And I just, I, I, I feel, I just look around and say, like, I don't feel peace here. And, but I can't up in the mountains. And I'm not saying I worship the mountains. I'm just saying that I do try to, I try to gain access to divinity. I do. And I think as far as, and you can I talk way too much, but as far as my relationship with people, this is not, other than Ron's family and you know, ward members who now don't see me on a Sunday, but with people that I'm with every single day at work and the students and stuff like that, my relationships there have been, I mean, kindness, mercy, love, um, forgiveness. Those are powerful relationships. Um, you know, as far as our morals, we're not doing anything that we weren't doing as an act of temple recommend holding. We're not, we're not off part. We're not doing anything. We're the same people we were a year ago. Other than I haven't been to church. Let me let me let let me just say two things. We probably got to go if we have another family. So two two quick things. By the way, those are your top copies. I'll, I'll keep it. I, um, I'm going to let C.S. Lewis do the teaching on this on the whole mountain thing because I'm I'm there with you. Um, and and this he he kind of brought me around. He said nature cannot satisfy the desires she arouses, nor answer theological questions, nor sanctify us. Our real journey to God involves constantly turning our backs on her, passing from the dawn-lit fields into some pokey little church. <laughs> so, so go go grapple with that however right. you want. I love CS And then and then and of course he'd been through a journey maybe even more arduous than yours. And then this, I just want to give you a heads up <coughs> on what I'll say because it it touches on one of the things that that kind of was fingernails on the chalkboard for you, and it's this. Having perplexing questions, and this is, I think it's a direct quote from what I'll say to the students. Having perplexing questions that arise from reasons to doubt is not a problem. But please understand that finding answers to those perplexing questions ultimately is not the answer. Or is not the solution. That's the word I use, solution. The solution is, and it's what I've been telling you here, a sure and certain foundation whereon, if you build, you cannot fall, regardless of reasons to doubt. And that foundation has got to be Jesus Christ. Um, and George Q. Cannon made a statement, Do not put your trust in man, though he be a bishop, an apostle, or a president. If you do, they will let you down. At some point, they will make a mistake. At some point, they will offend you. And he said, perhaps it is by divine design that mistakes are revealed in high places in order that man will, or his saints will learn to put their trust in him and not in any man or woman.
So put your trust in him. Go build, go build faith, and have all the reasons to doubt that you need to work through. We, and you don't have to look for them. The fact that you knew 99% of it tells me that somebody wasn't doing a very good job of hiding it. I trust trust me. I don't think very many people had access to some of those records. Okay. Or Lachlan Mackay. He's okay. the digger. Or well, so, Zealous so, Mound. Yeah. So go go and go go and have the questions. That's not that is not a problem. But the solution is not answers to the questions because as soon as you answer all these, there will be this many more. The solution is a sure and certain foundation. And and go build on it. Go build and don't let people, prophets or otherwise, screw you up. Go, but but then part of this is going to be an understanding, and you you already know this, that God uses people who are sometimes screwing up in the very moment that He's using them for His purposes. So, and I'm not by that I'm not saying that that was Joseph's case. I'm 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 saying so. So what if it's Joseph? Sure. Well, Brigham. Uh, yeah. Brigham, I have a hard time. Right. Uh, well, and that was, I kept this. <laughs> I kept this on just that one opening right. thesis statement. But it goes back. It yeah. goes back to Peter. It goes back to Noah. It goes back to Moses. I mean, he just, just people are just make stupid mistakes. So I know we're out of time. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, if for whatever reason in the future you've got you, something pops in your head, you're like, you know what, dude needs this. Whatever. Just a, just a thought that you had in your head. Just. I'm just going to send this, get my email address, keep I'll, in touch if you ever have. I'll contact you directly, or maybe have somebody, if there's something in here that yeah. they think is slightly off. Hand it to, um, hand it to Matt Rowe and say, tear this thing apart. Yeah, I'm just not going to tear it apart. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Can we pray with you? Absolutely. Please? Would you, please? I'd be happy to. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we are grateful to have been here. We are grateful for thy son. We are grateful for what Jesus did and what he now does. We're thankful for truth and we seek it. We pray that as we earnestly and honestly seek truth that it will be made manifest unto us. We ask thee to bless in their uh, journey and in their efforts and in their studies that they might find reasons to believe amidst all the reasons to doubt and that thou will give them these reasons to believe that they can cling to and thou will uh, add upon them and add testimony upon testimony. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for uh, vision and a, a correct understanding of all things. We put our trust in thee and in thy son and in thy ways and thy order and pray that we can understand it more perfectly and how we fit into it, and how others around us fit into it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mm. I'd just like to say one thing. Next year you can come visit with me. I was right there with you, though. Why is that? Because he didn't get to talk to it. Oh. No, I, I, I ran the whole thing. So that's okay. That's okay, because we know what is taking you down this road. And all this stuff that you've had in this book, I've read. I haven't studied it like you do because I hear about it and I don't want to know anymore. Because I've had spiritual experiences in my life that I know that the Lord is concerned about me and has turned me around in my life. 
to know that He is real and that He's concerned about me. And I look at the church today and what good it does, even though maybe some of the earlier people that started it maybe were a little off. But I do know God is a controller or else it had died with Him. And I look at all the good things that it does through primary, through young women, and teaching us good values within the life. And I think your children are missing that. And I would love to have them be a part of that, even though some of these questions that you have are real. And I don't know uh, if it would benefit the church that it came out broad and that the, an apostle started talking about it. It's not going to help anything. This is Christ's church, and I truly believe that because I have testimony of it. Thank you. Let me be a second witness. I, I hope that nothing I have said has seemed wishy-washy on it. I, Jesus did say I'm going to have a church. I'm going to build it. My testimony is that this is that church restored to the earth um, and that that it is led by prophets and apostles, that they're not they're not perfect, but it does it does contain his truth and it is consistent with his order and that has come to me none of this is new to me it's a fair question if Richard Bushman is raising all these questions why does he still believe why does Patrick Mason still believe and they both still go to church Mm -hmm. what is it about what do they know I wish they'd share that honestly I wish Richard Bushman would have made it a little bit more devotional rough stone rolling um, because I'd like to know why he believes, notwithstanding all of this. Right. Um, I'd like to know why Patrick Mason and others still believe, notwithstanding all of this. So if you are going to pull from their quotes, then also pull from their faith. Right. And maybe lean on some of that as well. And you'll you'll be okay. I not to I mean, the, in the in the appendix I, I have a page in the appendix where I talk a little bit about that. I mean, look at it or don't, whatever. Yeah. Um, no, we've been t- talked about that a lot. We talk about it all the time. That's that's every time we've ever had a conversation. That is her point. That's where you come around to asking that question. Well, I'm just really interested too. But at the end of the day, it's it's. I mean, if, if we're truly going to have the foundation that is going to be sure and certain and make us unshakable then it's going to be strengthened by but not dependent on Bushman or Mason right. or even Joseph. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to be said, well, here's, here's how it was taught in 1821, 1921, General Conference. It is well enough to read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to sit at a table of spiritual feasting, to dine with the Lord on a few of the things that you know have come from heaven direct, is worth all the scripture, valuable as the scriptures may be. And if you have not had that, and if your testimony has not been added upon and added upon, I beseech you to turn that door that heaven may speak to you in your work and in your life. Ultimately, I'm not saved because of what happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or reading about it. I'm saved because what happened to them happens to me, including what happened in the Grove in 1820. I need to go out and have that experience, seeking forgiveness, asking with unwavering faith, and then, and then let the heavens open. Thank you for. I know you burned up a lot of time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love you. Love you. Love both of you.
Good luck tonight. It's a rough crowd. Well, come, come tonight. Are you coming? Maybe. Oh, come. I got no friends in the area. The only three friends I have are right here and your mom, so there's four. Who needs enemies? Uh, I tell you, I hope you're not going to stand up and say boo. But come tonight, and then, and then for sure, tune in 11.30, if you can, on Tuesday. But if, you, if, you can, if you can't, then it'll still be, you can get there right, and, you know, and watch the broadcast. But also, tomorrow night is given a fireside to the yeah. adults. This is what we never got to talk about. <laughs> there's, there's religion. Well, trust me. That's why next time you come to East Idaho, we'll have a whole different conversation. Okay. Thank you. And that concludes the discussion between Kyle McKay, church historian, and Joe, the former seminary teacher, that took place in Joe's living room on Saturday, April 22nd, 2023. I hope you've enjoyed listening in and being a fly on the wall for this fascinating conversation. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. <laughs>